What's up, everybody? Welcome to another week of The Bible Boys. My name is James. And I'm Pip. And it's another week. And it's another day. And it's Monday while we're recording. It's sunny outside where I am. Uh, We are recording over FaceTime. Yes. No more Zoom because we're done with these 40-minute restrictions, you know? Uh, 40 minutes, like 40 is a really biblical number, Mm. you know? Lots of good things happen over 40s. But uh, Zoom meetings, look, we we want more. Is is that asking too much, Pip? Um, I don't think it is. And I think uh, Zoom, you know... Uh, survival of the fittest, my friend. So if you want us to use Zoom, you know, get rid of the uh, the cap. That's right. That's right. We, oh, wait, we, for, we, for, forty days. Yes. Isn't that like? Isn't that like a bad number? Uh, well, forty is associated with uh, is that a, a, good? A, a testing and judgment, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> if you think about um, anyway, there's. Lots of things we could go down with the number 40. Well, Zoom has tested our patience. <laughs> and, our, and our judgment of it is uh, it's time to move on and try something else. That's it. That's it. Now, Pip, you and I are in the midst of research week. Mm. Uh, How has your research week been so far on day one of research week? Yes, there's been a little bit of researching going on. Um, looking at Isaiah, uh, I've got basically an essay to write on um, how Isaiah presents God as creator mm. um, and tying that like to implications for how Christians think about eschatology. Um, so, yeah. And as you know, like I've been thinking a lot about eschatology this year, and so this is just another opportunity to think about eschatology. Um, but to think of it from through the lens of Isaiah, mm. um which has been really interesting because, um, yeah, Isaiah speaks a lot about um, the future judgment and the future hope um, that God promises his people. And sometimes it's it's not always easy to understand like or locate what Isaiah is actually talking about. Is he is he talking about uh, something in the near in the next kind of few weeks? For, for, you know, if Isaiah, let's say Isaiah lived around 700 years before Jesus, is Isaiah some, talking about something that's going to happen in the next few weeks, in the next few years, in the next few centuries, in the next few millennia? Like, what what is Isaiah talking about? Um, mm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What about you? So How's your... By, by, I was just, sorry, I was just going to say, by the end of this week, you will know everything about Isaiah and eschatology, won't you? Uh, absolutely not. Um, that that is probably an unrealistic bar to set for myself for this week. I'm trying to know enough to explain it uh, somewhat competently. Um, but yeah, I'm just reflecting on it as well. Just like in terms of research, we um, you know we we had a, a more West men's breakfast this morning with just like the guys from more West. And um, I shared a little devotion on um, Psalm 19. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really helpful for me just to read Psalm 19 this morning and just think, you know, to delight in God's word, like the law of the Lord is perfect. It provides Mm -hmm. refreshment, provides joy. Um, And so really what I want to get out of this week is just to be refreshed and renewed myself and my own joy in God's salvation in reading 
parts of Isaiah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. How are you going? How's day one of research week for you? What are you doing this week? Yeah, so I'm going to aim to finish uh, 1 Samuel exegetical. So Old Testament exegetical looking at 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's the first Hebrew exegesis, uh, ex- well, he- Hebrew language exegetical that um, I'll be doing. So, you know, I've done a few English text exegeticals now in Old Testament. Uh, and then this year so far, I've done three Greek exegeticals for New Testament. But yeah, I feel like I've got to relearn how to do this thing called an exegetical mm-hmm. um, because we're working with the Hebrew text. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, that, that'll be the, the little puzzle I am trying to solve this week. Um, nice. So have you been digging into 1 Samuel 24 today? Is that been what's been happening? No. So yeah, just had a bit of a rough weekend with sleep and, and, sure, and whatnot. Sure. So today I was taking it quite easy. Uh, I, d- I did some Greek and Hebrew I, I did some reading. Nice. Um, so, you know, just trying to ease myself into the week yeah, um, nice. and get ready for, for, for the rest of the week. But yeah, you know, working hard, hardly working. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've had a, I had a question that is not related to research week that I wanted to, to, to put to you, Pip, oh, because okay, right, here we go. I feel like, you know, you have some thoughtful opinion uh, about this a topic that came up after church yesterday. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm intrigued. So uh, I've got a question for you, which is when was the last time, this isn't the main question, but it's an intro. When, when was the last time you, you did something with a check? Like a paper check, like a money yes. check? Yes. Oh, I don't know. Um, A check. A check. I can't remember the last time it must it's been years ago i think maybe I, I i might have gotten a check from school or something for some reimbursement back wow in high that's a long time ago then yeah i don't know what about you uh, i think the last time i got a check was maybe uh three or four years ago yeah three or four okay. years ago yeah. essentially this was a discussion i had with some people off the church yesterday which is you know, everything happens now by card or bank transaction. You know, cash itself is kind of out the door, although in some sectors it's making a bit of a resurgence. Um, but my question was, how much money would you have to have on a check for you to find it worth taking the effort, going to your local branch or your ATM and doing something with it, you know? Because if, mm. yeah, if it was $5 on the check, would you go, eh? I don't know if I'm going to go through all of that to, to, you know. So, Pip, how much money would you need to have on a check to make it worth worth your while to go and, you know, do whatever I, you need to do? I would say, oh, like $15, I'd say. $15? 15 15 okay. Because, okay. you know, time is money, James. Time is money, you know. <laughs> and so, um, you know, uh, to line up, to do the thing, you know, if if I maybe if I've accumulated, if I'm going to the shops in the first place, maybe maybe it's less, maybe it's like five bucks. I just pop in mm-hmm. and I do it. But to go out of my way in my week, uh, yeah, I don't know, fifteen. What would you What would you say? What's your magic number? I'd say at least thirty dollars personally. Oh my goodness, thirty dollars. Thirty dollars. You know, maybe I'll settle for twenty because for me, 
being with ComBank, ComBank lets you deposit checks very mm. easily. Um, I, I'm, so I've actually already got it set up. But if I needed to set it up, you know, from the beginning, you know, I, I don't have an easy way to, to, uh, to get my de- check deposit going, maybe at least $30 for me personally. Mm. Now on this, um, someone who shall not be named, but uh, uh, maybe let's say uh, an older figure around my life as an acquaintance only just set up internet banking for themselves last week. Wow. And the reason why is because they're going to be going overseas soon and that will help them with something or other. And I was going, okay, that's a pretty good reason to set up internet banking, Mm. right? You're going overseas, you need some money, but what would be the bare minimum requirements for you to set up internet banking? Clearly nothing up until this point Mm. for them. Um, so wait, wait, how do you live without internet banking? Uh, that is a great question and a real first world problem, might I say so myself. <laughs> so what it was? So he was he was doing the check. He was taking checks to the bank. I, I think his wife was doing all the internet banking. Oh, okay, right. On, for the family, mm. he he wasn't doing it himself. Right. Okay. Yes. There you go. Anyway, That's not brave. an important question, but just one that I thought I'd throw you away. So $15 is enough to get you out of your couch, down the road, to the, the local mom and pop bank, mm. you know, and, and give them that little piece of paper. The old mom and pop com bank. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we're, we're about to get into um, a bit of a, a multi-part series um, mm. over the next few weeks because we've had a particular request come in. And listeners, you can always message us on Instagram at Bible underscore boys, or you can email us at the Bible boys with a Z at gmail.com. And we've gotten a, a, a request through neither of those means. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out Ray for messaging me and, um, and putting this one forward. Pip, would you be willing to, to, to share what, what the request was? All right, hold on, hold the phone. <laughs> Got to get out my messages. Got to get out the, the carrier um, pigeon. Hold on. Pull the little scroll from Where his it? little talon. Where is it? Where is it? Okay, here it is. Um, okay, hey, Pip, what do you think about covering the five points of Calvinism on the Bible Boys? Um and there's some stuff about, you know, maybe agreeing with some points, maybe not agreeing with some points. Um, limited atonement. What's the deal with that? Can we agree with limited atonement? Um, I would love to see a rigorous argument for both sides of it and perhaps be convinced one way or the other. Um, so far, I haven't come across anything that betrays both sides of the argument in great detail. Mm-hmm. You could even do You could even do a five-part series. So I think that's what we're thinking of doing. Is that right? Yeah. Well, maybe not a five part. We'll see how we go. Yeah. Today, I think we can, well, let, let me do a bit of an introduction to the series and we'll see how we, we end up going with this because, you know, classic James and Pip, it's not like we've spent hours working on this beforehand. Mm. We're just going to vibe it and see where we go. How's that sound? For shizzle. <laughs> so first off, you uh, listeners will notice that the title to this uh, episode is not the five points of Calvinism, uh, because this sort of modern title to these five points 
or five doctrines, five affirmations is, is quite modern. It's not actually what it was about originally. But what is this? Well, these five points are sometimes called or, or referred to as the acrostic tulip. Now, I'll say what these are, and I'll, I'll say a bit about the background behind them. Um, so, TULIP uh, stands for f- Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. Now, this is a f- nice little, you know, acrostic that, that has been put together uh, in the English language. But where does all this come from? Well, the five points of Calvinism are a set of, it's a summary of a set of Christian beliefs that were articulated uh, after a council in the Netherlands called the Synod of Dort. Now, Synod is sort of like a parliament, you know, people getting together and, and arguing and talking about and working things out of Dort. And I'm pretty sure Dort is, is like a city in the Netherlands uh, from 1618 to 1619. Uh, and these were the, the Dutch Reformed Church was trying to settle some disputes that had come up, particularly through a, a figure named Jacobus Arminius. And Jacobus Arminius was teaching a set of doctrines that were really questioning some tenets of Reformed theology. Um, and Reformed theology is in the vein of, of such people as John Calvin or, uh, you know, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, Heinrich Bullinger, um, Beyser, Martin Bootser, you know, a bunch of these people. And Jacobus Arminius was teaching a, a set of doctrines about things like the nature of humanity, the sovereignty of God, and the free will of humans, uh, and also this topic of predestination. And so the Synod of Dort came together over two years, 1618 to 1619, to sort of work out what they thought about Arminius's teachings and came up with five sets of or heads of doctrine known as the Canons of Dort. Mm. All right. And now these five were then summarized later, I think in like the early 20th century in English under these five points, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, giving us the acrostic tulip. Mm. Uh, so suffice it to say, these weren't called tulip at first. Um, you know, they were speaking, what do they speak in the Netherlands? Dutch, they were speaking Dutch. They weren't speaking English, right? Um, and also they weren't called the five points of Calvinism. Um, you know, Calvin was was dead by the time these these uh, all this was happening. And oh man, I don't exactly remember when Calvin died, but I think it was fifteen sixty three. Can you do a search on that just to see when Calvin died? Uh, I think it's fifteen sixty three, but maybe I'm wrong about that number. Calvin, Calvin, John Calvin, um, died fifteen sixty four. Oh, one year off. Sorry, everyone. Um, but that's okay, James. That's all right. <laughs> you are forgiven. Good to know. In Christ, I am forgiven. 1564, John Calvin died. Synod of Dort happens in 1618 to 1619. So what's that? That's, you know, 55 years after his death. This is not something that was happening in the lifetime of Calvin. It's also worth saying that 
the reformed reformed theology is is much more than just John Calvin. You know, a bunch of the names I threw out there are also part of, uh, you know, the reformed heritage. Uh, Butzer, uh, Zwingli, Bullinger, uh, um, you know, and so on. So these are really five points that are in the reformed tradition. But nowadays people call the five points of Calvinism. All right. Now that's a bit of a, you know, historical background sort of thing. Is, is that helpful? Is, is, do you have any thoughts about that, Pip? That's that's helpful. Um, I guess uh, maybe a question would be, you know, why, what was it about that time in history that really got people up in arms about these issues around, like, um, you know, if you think about Calvinism as about kind of, I when when I hear Calvinism, often I th- I think about the interplay between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, right? And I and Calvinism is very much strongly on the on God is completely sovereign in salvation. God, uh, God is who is the Lord of salvation? God is the Lord of salvation. Um, God is the one who saves, um, and that kind of plays into a lot of the. I feel like the chul- a lot of the tulip acronyms that that you mentioned come back to God is sovereign in salvation. Um, was there anything particular about the time period in the 16th century that brought these things to the fore? Um, didn't haven't we haven't Christians kind of had this question of like free will versus God's sovereignty? Hasn't that always been a, qu- a question that theologians have talked about, philosophers, and you know? Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well. I'm not fully keyed into all of the church history behind Dort itself, but a particular focus is the, um, you know, what was happening in the Reformation. You know, in the Reformation, uh, you know, 1517 onwards, you know, starting in in Germany and, and, and extending outwards, what we're really trying to capture here is a recovery of grace. Uh, at its core, it's it's a question of, you know what is is has grace been lost by the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church? Um, even though they would say it's grace from start to finish, you know, and there are lots of important things that were discussed and came up in the Reformation, things like papal authority, the question of the authority of the scriptures, um, uh, the question of the Lord's Supper, of course, the matter of justification through faith alone. Uh, all of that is thrown up into the air. What was going on in Reformed theology, and a particular focus for Calvin, let's say, mm. um, is is the question of grace. Um, you know, some people say that Calvin's all about sovereignty. Well, he, he is about sovereignty. But if you read his institutes, for example, you know, it, it doesn't... It, where it actually starts is the majesty of God, letting God be God, um, and trying to recognize that the true knowledge of God only comes because he reveals himself to us in all his splendor. But that very act of revelation is an act of grace. Uh, You know, God doesn't need to show himself to us. God doesn't need to reveal who he is. But the fact that he does is is utter grace. And so really where Calvin is coming from, as he starts the Institutes, is the graciousness of God and even making himself known. 
And that then goes, you know, that's book one, essentially, in terms of knowledge of God as creator. And then book two of the Institutes is about God as redeemer and, and how it, it, God's kindness and graciousness has made salvation possible. And then it's only in book three that we start thinking about God's graciousness when it comes to applying redemption to us mm. uh, and, and, and things that are related to, uh, you know, a lot of the points of um of, of the canons of Dort in, in the application of, of grace to us. But really from start to finish, it's about God's grace. And so I imagine one of the things that's coming up with Arminius and his teaching was a recognition that some of these points make grace not grace anymore mm. um, or diminish the, 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 the majestic picture of grace that we see in the Bible that God has revealed to us. And I'm sure that Arminius didn't feel like he was diminishing grace. In fact, I think as we'll talk about in the in the coming weeks, Arminius thought that he was upholding grace and upholding the love of God and upholding the 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 goodness of God as well. Um, so, so maybe just some helpful caveats as we get into this. Um, uh, you know, James, you've so, you know got some frameworks in to help us think through this. Um, but we're, as we come to this, we're not going to have all the answers and we're not going to have the um, the most rigorous presentation on this topic that you can find. Uh, there's plenty of stuff out there um, which is helpful to kind of give a, a kind of a rigorous portrayal of both sides. I guess what we want to do is we want to just talk about each of the points. Um, we want to base our discussion on the Bible. We want to think through what it means for us, what's at stake. And so maybe maybe that's the place where we could start, James. Is like, if someone you know hearing this so far is like, okay, we're getting to this historical debate. Um, what well, what you know what is the point? Can't we just you know read what the Bible says and come to a, an understanding of what it says and just move on? Like, can't we just read the Bible? You know, agree with the Bible and move on. Why? What, what's at stake in this discussion? Hmm. Yeah, thank you. And you know what? That's a that's always a question that comes up in any of these things. You know, why do we need to get into this fancy language? Why do we need to add all these extra words, these frameworks, this this acrostic even? Uh, well, what what's the purpose behind all of this? And you know, it it there's a number of ways you can answer that. But I I think on one level, a really great place to to see this is that, well, God has revealed Himself to us. And as faithful, humble uh, uh, recipients of that grace, we want to be able to speak faithfully about what God has said. It's actually about receiving what God has given us to the best of our fallible ability um, and seeking to, to, to uphold what God wants us to uphold. You know, it's, it's actually arrogance if we say, well... I know the Bible says some things here, but I don't know. Who knows? You know, uh, I don't know if, if God has said this. So in as much as God has said things, we should graciously receive them and articulate them faithfully. Where he has kept quiet about things, well, to speculate too much is, is to go too far. Um, but it's also worth saying that these five points didn't really come up out of nowhere. They came as a response to Arminius's uh, teachings, and in particular, it's actually worth saying that Arminius was also dead by the time that that um 
that the, the Synod of Dort was happening. I think Arminius had died 10 years before. So it was really the, the, um, the followers of Arminius who, mm-hmm. who were putting these things out there in, in the Netherlands. Um, uh, the remonstrants, if I remember correctly, they were called the remonstrants. Um, and so it's not as if these things came up as a way of just going, yeah, we've, we've come up with five things that we want to think about. Rather, it's these are five things that were being claimed by the remonstrants uh, falsely. And so there was five things that were said in response to, to uh, what the remonstrants were, were saying. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, where the rubber hits the road, what we're trying to uphold here is the truth of God uh, and the grace that he has made known for us and our salvation. Okay. So um, I think that's helpful just to think about why we're having the discussion. But what about how? How do we have this discussion? Um, mm. Do you want to speak a bit about methodology and maybe some of the different options? So you, well, before we had this call, you were saying we, we could go through a tulip and just start at total depravity. Um, but the canons of Dort themselves don't necessarily start right there. Yeah. So th- thanks, Pip. That's really helpful. Um, by the way, listeners, can I just say, sorry, Pip, this is a bit of a meta comment. Okay, right. I, let me just say, you know, we didn't do any real prep beforehand, but I think that this is really good because you're, you're, you're actually giving us a really helpful, clear way of going through this. And then I'm um, just spitballing some stuff here. I, I, it's we, a pleasure to work with you, Pip. It's a pleasure to work with you, my friend. <laughs> I love you, James. <laughs> love you, Pip. <laughs> All right. So, what is going on here? Um, yeah. So, as you were saying before, we did the core. We just had a bit of a thirty-second chat where I said, you know, tulip, T U L I P, is the way that most people talk about these points, and I think there's an order and a logic to it. The issue is, though, that tulip is not the way that the canons of Dort were originally articulated. Um, so, you know. Uh, starts a tulip starts with total depravity but in the canons of dort the thing that we might say is um you know uh total depravity is actually the third thing that they talked about um the third uh, article shall we say or the third head of doctrine uh, the first one they actually started with was unconditional election and then the second one was what we might call limited atonement the third one was total depravity. The fourth one was irresistible grace. And then the fifth one was perseverance of the saints. And it's worth saying that that last one there, perseverance of the saints, is the only um, title that, that the canons of Dort themselves put forward. All the other ones, uh, the names that, that are behind them, were things that were brought in English uh, by some... Uh, scholar, theologian, teacher who was trying to simplify it as they were teaching it. Mm. So we could go about this in terms of tulip um, and, and a lot of books and, and, and preachers do, or we could try to go back to the canons of Dort themselves and try to understand uh, the way they articulated these things and also think about some of the passages that they would have appealed to. Uh, to talk about these these issues and and uh, Pip, I, I feel like we should do that second one um, to try to go. Okay, well, what are these five doctrines of grace that that um, you know I would prefer to refer to them as from the canons of Dort? Let let's do it the way it was originally articulated. Okay, awesome. So this first you know instalment, we're we're going to be thinking about um, the first head of doctrine of the canons of Dort also known as unconditional election. Now, let me just state what it is, 
and then I'm going to read a part of the Canons of Dort, and then we're going to get into the Bible. How's that sound? That sounds great. Awesome. So, um, and, and folks, just again to say, you know, these um, these titles, you know, uh, unconditional election is not what the first is not what the Canons of Dort said. That is a thing that we have added to it, and so we'll talk about whether the title is helpful or not. Anyway, do, do they do they have titles? I I've gone online. Can I can I firstly can I just like say this um, little hack, this Google hack, right? Yes. You probably know this hack. If you type in like file type colon PDF, it it only shows you PDFs. And so I didn't know that. I've I've just I've just Googled Canons of Dort file type PDF, and I've gotten a PDF that has what looks like the heads of doctrine the articles yes and the, the first one says um the first the first head and this is reformed um like reformed puritan website first head of doctrine of divine predestination so what did you say well like what's the common title for it you said uh, unconditional uh, un- unconditional election is the one that we might throw out there okay um yes so this first head, yes, it's, it's about divine election or divine predestination okay. and reprobation. Um, but we call this unconditional election. Now, listeners, it's worth saying that under each of these heads of doctrine, they've got several what are called articles where they lay out a lot of nuances to what they're trying to say and what they're trying to affirm. And then there's what's called refutation of errors or rejection of errors. Does your document have that there? Yeah, it's got all that. It's the first one's got 18 articles and nine rejections. That's right. So what I've done here is I've tried to just summarize this to, you know, what is the crux of the matter that they Mm. were trying to, to, to affirm? But it's worth saying, listeners, this is a really big simplification. Like there's a lot more going on here um, than we'll have time to look at. So, This first one, also called traditionally unconditional election, I'm going to read from Article 10 of the first point of doctrine on the Canons of Dort. Mm. Okay, so listen to this wording here, Article 10. The cause of this undeserved election is exclusively the good pleasure of God. This does not involve God's choosing certain human qualities or actions from among all those possible as a condition of salvation but rather involves adopting certain particular persons from among the common mass of sinners as God's own possession. Um, Now, just as a quick logistical point, does your translation that you have there, was that similar to what I read? Like, did you you Um, see that kind of wording? It it is, yeah, it is similar. Um, but mine's a bit more old school. Mine like starts out, the good pleasure of God is the sole cause of this gracious election, with which doth not consist herein, that out of all possible qual and so on and so forth. So it's very yes. sim- it's it's very similar, but um yeah, just a bit more old school. Yes. So I've got that in front of me as well. I also have sort of a a, a cleaned up English version, but it's the same meaning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So what is what is the thing that's being affirmed here, right? The thing that's being affirmed is that God chooses people, predestines people to be saved, but the sole cause of his choosing is the good ple- is his good pleasure. Mm. In other words, God doesn't choose people to be saved for any quality 
or action or, or talent or value or decision that is in the person themselves. That's why historically in English, people have referred to this as unconditional election because one of the things that the remonstrants affirmed is that God's election or predestination of people was conditional on something. Mm. In other words, that uh, God chose people to be saved because of some quality that was in them. So as an example of this, if you go to um, the rejections of this doctrine, uh, paragraph five, okay, paragraph five, uh, this is what the um, the uh, remonstrants, those who are following Jacobus Arminius, were 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 claiming. So, can you read maybe just a few a few bits of the of paragraph five Do on you the mean, rejections? Uh, yeah, rejection five. Yes, that's it. That okay. So my version's a bit old school. So sure, I'll I'll give it a go. You let me know if this is helpful. Sure. It's, it says. Um, and I think this is this is quoting this is um, it it starts off with the Arminian side and then rejects it. Does that make sense? Yes, please. Okay, so it says this um, that the incomplete and non-decisive election of particular persons to salvation occurred because of a foreseen faith, conversion, holiness, godliness, which either began or continued for some time but that the complete and decisive election occur, occurred because of foreseen perseverance unto the end in faith, conversion, holiness, and godliness, and that this is the gracious and evangelical worthiness for the sake of which he who is chosen is more worthy than he who is not chosen. Okay, and maybe that, we'll stop there. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Just, I think, I think we get the point there. So, like, do you yeah. want to have a go at trying to put together what that's actually saying? Yeah, okay. So, is this saying that... It's the idea that like God kind of looks down the barrel of time before the creation of anything, and and God kind of has a sense of those people who who would put their faith in Him and persevere and continue, and so God kind of recognizes beforehand, oh, this person would have faith in me, therefore I'm going to uh, quote unquote choose them. Is yes, that, is that right? Yeah, I mean that's a it's it's a simplistic way of putting it. Yeah. But yeah, the way that the canons of Dort say it is that uh, you know, uh, it's wrong to say that God foresees someone's faith, or He foresees their conversion, or He foresees their holiness, or He foresees their godliness, or He foresees you know the way they would be if 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 the gospel was presented to them, and on that basis, on that condition, shall we say? says, yeah, this person would choose me, and so therefore I'm going to choose them first. Mm. Um, that is the... And so, so to be clear here, Arminius and the Remonstrants, they, they affirmed predestination. They affirmed that God chooses before we choose him. But the question is, this is the point here, the point is on what basis is that choice made? On what basis is that election made uh, for a particular person. Mm. The Remonstrants had a particular view that was saying that God foresees uh, what would happen in a hypothetical world and on that basis chooses people, whereas the Canons of Dort were claiming that no, actually, 
The cause of this election is exclusively the good pleasure of God and does not involve any human qualities or actions from among all of those who might have a, you know, a, a possible action in the future. Does that make sense there in the difference? That makes sense. And do, do you want me to read out, because I've got, also got the reply, which has got some Bible verses in there as well. Do you want me to read that out or save that for later? Save that for later, because I think let, let's look at some passages ourselves and then maybe you can read out the way the canons of Dort uh, responded to it. Does that yeah, sound sure. okay? Yeah, sure. Maybe it's worth just first saying, you know, to, to read um, the Arminian view like charitably you know it's maybe worth asking what are they what, what is it trying to uphold like what is it trying to protect do you know what i mean yes 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 um uh, i think um yeah oh sorry i cut you off pip you go no no yeah it's just you know like in my mind like when when you say okay god maybe see looks down the barrel of time sees who would believe and then chooses them maybe what you're trying to protect or uphold is this idea that god is um it's not trivial it's not just like ran- it's not like random, but God, there, there is, there is actually some kind of logic to what God's doing to his, to it's not just like, any mini money mo. Oh, I'll choose you, um, because from a human perspective, if it's if God doesn't choose people on the basis of faith, or uh, anything to do with the person. Um, then is it is it trivial? Is it just kind of random who God chooses and who He doesn't? So that's that's uh, trying to read it like charitably and and seeing okay, what are they trying to protect? They're trying to protect the non-triviality of God's decision making. That's really helpful. That's really helpful. If I can put it another way, um, you know, listeners, if if you're a Christian and you're looking at your own faith and you've got friends or family members who who have not responded to the gospel, and you come to the Bible and you see, oh, wait, God chooses who to save. At that point, you get a question in your mind. You can go, well, why is it that I became a Christian and they they haven't or they won't? Um, Why is it that they continue in hardness of heart and you know, say no to the gospel. Why hasn't God shown them mercy? Why has he shown me? Mm. Um, Is, is God random? You know, how, how is that? Why, why doesn't God just save everyone? Mm. Uh, And I, I think there's a sense in which, yes, the, the conditional election view is saying, no, there's got to, it's not random. There's got to be some basis upon which God has chosen people. And in fact, you know what, let's look at a particular passage that, is cited in favor of the view that God foresees things. So if you want to come to Romans chapter eight, mm-hmm. uh, verse 29, uh, can you read just the first part of Romans eight twenty nine? Okay. Hold on. Just give us a sec. Romans eight twenty nine says for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There you go. So clearly we've got a verse here that's saying that God foreknows people and then after that he predestines them to be conformed to the image of his son. Um, And so clearly there's a verse here that could be used in favor to say, yeah, clearly God foreknows people and then he predestines them. Mm. Um, 
And I think that it's important to say that it's not as if, you know, the, the, the canons of Dort have all this Bible and then the Remonstrants don't have any Bible. That, that's not, that's not <laughs> the case mm, at all. Mm. Like Jacobus Arminius, it's, it, for all intents and purposes, it seems like he was a deeply sincere, careful Bible reader who was trying to uphold the biblical testimony. Mm, yep. um, so let's hold on to that for a second. We'll come back to this verse in a little bit. But let's look at some other passages. Does that sound okay? Yeah, it sounds good. Can you open up to John chapter 1? Um, verses 9 to 13. Okay, it says this. Uh, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Great. So what we see in this passage is a beautiful truth, isn't it? That actually God... uh, That people receive Christ, they believe in his name, and are given the right to become God's children. But notice verse 13... How does this this becoming of a child of God happen? How does this occur? It does not come from natural descent, so it's not because of, you know, who your parents are, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, the sole basis upon which someone is attributed to becoming one of God's children is, is God himself, not a human decision. Mm. Human decisions are excluded from the process, according to John 1. Um, Can we take a look at Romans chapter 9 as well? Can you uh, open up to Romans chapter 9, verses 10 to 18? Okay, it says this. Uh, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Romans 9 is a huge passage for this discussion. And the, the, the idea, the reality of election, God's choice, is really on view here. In particular, it's, it's on view in thinking about the nation of Israel, how uh, God chooses to, to elect Israel, Mm. literally Jacob, the, the, you know, who's later renamed Israel. Um, 
And that's part of the broader discussion that's going on in Romans 9 to 11. Um, but even though there is that broader national view, it doesn't exclude a, a, an individual implication. And as we see here in God's election, verse 15, uh, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will show compassion on whom he will show compassion. Verse 16, it does not depend on human desire or effort. Remember, we, we saw that back in John 1, right? It doesn't depend on the human's choice. Mm. Verse, uh, Romans 9, 16, but on God's mercy. And then verse 18, it is God who has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whomever he wants to harden. And mm. so there's there's a lot of other passages I could go to. I, we could go to John 15, where uh, Jesus talks about his choosing the disciples. Um, they didn't choose him. He chose them. But I think from these two passages, we can see that there is a big exclusion of human decision, a big exclusion of human choice. Um, and so then coming back to Romans 8, 29, you know, it does say that God, those whom God foreknew, he predestines. And so there certainly is a foreknowledge to to you know, predestination and, and being chosen. Mm. But the mechanic of God looking through the passage of time and foreseeing something, that's not what Romans 8.29 actually says. Mm. It just says that he knows you and then he chooses you, which logically makes sense, right? God, anyone God chooses, he knows them beforehand. Uh, they, they are an entity in his mind, um, if, if we can use that sort of language. Um, but that that I mean, even that raises an interesting question, right? So is it like when you say that, what I'm imagining is that God, before anything cre- is created, imagines James, and he imagines me, and he imagines other people, and we're not like grey blobs, we're we're us in his imagination, and so does he imagine us in a particular way and then choose us? Like, does he imagine you as a as a faithful, um, you know, Bible college student? And it's like, oh, that that James, I'm I'm choosing him. Well, th- I think this is an example where the Bible doesn't tell us, as in, it doesn't tell us exactly what that gray blob is. <laughs> mm, mm. What it does tell us, though, is that human decision and will is excluded from election, that it utterly depends on God, his mercy, his compassion, not on us. And so I feel like this is an example where the, the, the remonstrance claiming that it's foreseen, it's to go beyond what the Bible is actually saying, mm. but it's more than just going beyond it. It's actually inserting human decision and will as if there's something in us yeah. that makes me, as a Christian, more worthy of being chosen than my friend or family member who, won't, who, who isn't chosen and never will become a Christian. Yeah. I it's think, inserting yeah. something. That, I think that's really important to say that, you know, the, w- when we take a point, we can logic our way around it, but we need to kind of go back to the revelation, the, the scripture as revealed, um, you know, like growing up, I remember talking to friends about predestination and um, 
it was weird the the kind of conclusion the conclusions that people would come to they'd be like okay so if god um chooses people not on the basis of anything then sure then god's just like a um like a chess player you know who kind of sets up the board exactly how he knows he's going to kind of accomplish everything he wants and he knows the moves that the other people are going to make um so it's a it's a bit kind of like arbitrary what's going on um but like i think what i've you know reflected on over the years more and more is like who who really talks about like who are we reading right now we're reading paul we're reading paul who has this deep knowledge this deep understanding of predestination and um not like uh i think there's this principle as to be like to read the bible faithfully we don't just take the little bits that paul says um or or peter or jesus or whoever it might be we don't just take the little bits and say okay i'm going to take this bit and now create logic around it and um you know let that logic determine my view of god but rather it's actually following paul and following peter and following jesus in how they connect the dots and actually where it leads them in terms of their worship and praise and so for someone who's reading through Romans 8, and you just keep thinking like, you read through Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, you get to this point, and this like struck me big time some years ago, you get to Romans um, 11, right? You get to Romans 11, um, verse 33, and Paul gets to this point where he says, the, he says, this is Romans 11, 33. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so it's interesting. Like Paul doesn't start there. You know, Paul doesn't start there and like throw up his hands and say, you know, this predestination thing, it's too difficult to think about, Um, you know, God's good to God be the glory. Let's just move on. He spends chapters wrestling with it and and talking about it and and reasoning from scripture, reasoning from the Old Testament. Um, But he does land at this place of praising God. And so if you read Paul on like, and and this is kind of where I've landed. If you read Paul on predestination, um, and you, but you don't arrive at praising God like that's where Paul arrives, then you've sort of misread Paul, right? Because like you haven't been, you're like you're not thinking Paul's way of thinking if you land at saying, well, God's not not glorious, and we and we ought not praise God because he's trivial. Um, that's not actually where Paul goes. So I just I think it's helpful to kind of appreciate not just the the logic and the arguments that Paul puts forward, but also where he lands in terms of his own worship of God, his own praise that he gives to God. Mm, That is super helpful. And it's humbling, isn't it? Because if it's true that God chooses us purely by his own mercy, completely out of his own compassion, not because of anything he saw hypothetically or you and me, then we have no reason to think that you or I or any any Christian is any better than the person who isn't a Christian. You see, conditional election 
if it is based on something that God foresaw in us, then you can say, look, maybe in, in time and in space, yeah, I, I, I'm not any better. But, you know, in the hypothetical world, in God's mind, I was better than, than my friend or family member because in the hypothetical world, God foresaw something in me mm. that meant he chose me. But under the Bible's teaching, I think it's actually saying no. You know, in a world that says we, we can know it all, get it all, that we're pretty good, the Bible's teaching is no. God's choice of you has nothing to do with your goodness or how much better you were or because you made one right choice in a hypothetical world. Mm. It's solely based on God's will um, and his pleasure. Uh, and, and it's not arbitrary because... God purposefully chose you, which which brings me to another point there. It it gives you great assurance, doesn't it? Because, you know, in, in your Christian life, in my Christian life, there are lots of times where, well, sorry, let me only speak about me. And you can tell me if you think this as well. But there have been times when I go, God, I think you made the wrong choice. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 I sin, I fall short, I've wronged you, I've wronged my brothers and sisters. What were you thinking when you chose me? But what, what, this, what this doctrine, what this first head of the, the doctrines of grace does is it says, you know what? It never was about your worthiness mm. at all. Mm. It never was about something that was found within you. God's love was not based on any condition in you. And so mm. God's not going to look at you and go, oh, I made a mistake. It was never about my goodness or worthiness in and of myself. And it never will be Mm. about my goodness or worthiness in and of myself. Um, This actually preserves grace and says, it is sheer kindness. Nothing that I have done or or hypothetically did do. It is purely God's choice. Mm. Um, So it gives us great assurance when we feel unworthy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So it, I guess it, yeah, rescues us from those like twin errors of like despair when we feel unworthy. You know, this this doctrine helps us see um, we don't need to despair, but it also rescues us from pride when we do think that we are worthy, when we think that we're doing pretty well and we think maybe God's chosen us because we do well. It's actually, no, no, like this pushes against that other extreme of, of pride as well and so mm. this is an, an incredible like you know some people shy away from talking about like doctrine theology but here like it's just a good example this is incredibly this gets to the heart the human heart um and how how it operates day to day pip would you be willing to read how the canons of dort responded to uh the way in which they articulated you know the, the way the remonstrants talked about it. Yeah, sure. So rejection five, and this is the response. Is that right? Yep. Yes, please. Okay, so it says, um, so it says this in response. This is repugnant to the entire scripture, which constantly inculcates this and similar declarations. Election is not out of works, but from him that calls. And quoting Romans 9.11, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calls. Quoting Acts 13, uh, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Uh, quoting Ephesians 1.4, 
he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Uh, quoting John fifteen sixteen, um, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Uh, quoting Romans eleven six, but if it if it be of works, then it is no longer grace. Uh, quoting one John four ten. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Mm. Um, thank you. Thanks, Pip. I've only got one more thing I want to say here, and then maybe you can wrap us up with any thoughts or, or sure, you know, sure. final things. I want to say that I think that this doctrine actually gives us great confidence. Uh, confidence in evangelism. And confidence in our friends and fam, conf- sorry, not in, but confidence for our friends and family members who, who aren't Christians yet. Mm. Let me explain what I mean. If it's true that God chooses people not on the basis of anything in them, you know what that means? It means that when you see a family member or a friend who in their own life, and their own belief and their own speech and their own actions seems completely far away from God and would never, ever pick him. They still have hope. Mm. Because it's not... It, God's choosing of them has nothing to do with their choosableness mm. <laughs> or their worthiness or how, how, how receptive they are to the gospel. Uh, rather, God has chosen people and they are chosen purely out of God's mercy and grace. And so we can share the gospel. We can pray and love, uh, pray for and love our, our friends and family members and know that God is the one who can bring them to respond. Um, mm. God's elect are out there in the world. Um, and, and, and you can't determine from an exterior's perspective. There is no condition that you and I can look at a person and say, yeah, they're definitely chosen mm. or no, they're not chosen. You don't know that. And so actually this, this doctrine actually upholds great confidence and boldness in evangelism. And it means we don't need to despair when we see a friend or family member uh, who seems completely far away from God. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any last words from you, Pip, about this particular doctrine here? Yeah, I, I think just on that last point, you know, it made me think again of Paul, Paul's experience, right? Like he, as he's writing this, maybe in the back of his mind, he's thinking, you know, I used to persecute Christians. I used to be involved in killing Christians. And, um, you know, maybe the the disciples, the other, you know, um, the other disciples who already knew Jesus, already knew of his resurrection, when they heard about Paul persecuting the church, you know, maybe maybe they prayed for him. Maybe they um, had hope for him. Um, God did an amazing thing in Paul. And for anyone that comes to Christ, God does an amazing thing in them. He gives them a new heart and a new mind. And so I think this, this doctrine, like, drives us to praise God for his elective purposes, for his choosing people to eternal life, um, even though none of us deserve it and i think so that's kind of where we're going to go in the next week i think in in terms of thinking about 
um, how undeserving, ill-deserving we are of God's mercy, how how depraved we are, um, which might seem a bit of a of a downer, but um, it's actually not. It drives us to more praise because it just shows it it shows how good God is. Um, yeah, yeah. So looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see if we get to that next week because total depravity is the third main point of doctrine. Okay. The second one is what we might call limited atonement. So we'll definitely start with that next week. Okay. All right. And so just to recap, today has been on, and we've given it a few different labels, but just to be really clear, so I guess maybe um, in in the kind of tulip schema, so maybe lots of people have heard of tulip. Um, today, really what we've talked about is the you. Yes. Unconditional election. Yes, that's yep. right. Uh, you know what? I'll probably put that in the title just because if I put Doctrines of Grace, people might not know what that's referring to. Yeah, sure. But I say Doctrines of Grace, part one, unconditional election. Yeah. That's, that's, that'll be the title of this And episode. so what we're saying is, you know, throw out Tulip. We're doing Ultip. <laughs> is that right? Is that accurate? I think so. I think so. Ultip. Now, that's, a, um, that, that's actually a Dutch word. From the front, which means, what does it mean? Tulip. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it's a made up word. Um, and it's what we're going with because that's what the canons of Dort go with. That's it. That's it. So listeners, we hope this is helpful. It's worth saying that there's, there's probably a whole host of questions that have been thrown up there. And they will be over the next few weeks. But we hope that drives you back to the Bible. It shows us the, 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 the awesomeness of grace and will give you a greater sense of praise for your salvation in Christ. Mm. Um, and if you are, you know, someone who's listening who isn't a Christian, I guess one thing that Pip and I would pray for you is that you would see, yeah, I want in on that. And if your heart is being drawn towards that, know this, uh, this, this, this could be the way in which God has decided to draw you to himself, to hear about how gracious he is. Um, anyway, just throwing that out there. Mm, mm, nice. Nice. All right, we should finish. Pip, do you want to, do you have a guess who or a guess which for me? Um, let's do a guess which. Short and sweet. All right. Is this in the Old Testament? Yes. Okay, sorry, listeners, just to be clear, seven questions. Guess which book of the Bible. I'm guessing Pip's got a book of the Bible in mind. Uh, second question, is it one of the prophetic books? No. Okay. Is it one of the writings? No. Okay. Is it in the Pentateuch? Yes. Okay. Is this... Uh, <laughs> does this have genealogies in it? Yes. Does this book have a serpent? Wait, sorry, both of them have. Does this book have a serpent on a a bronze serpent in it? Yes. Hey, is it the book of Numbers? Yeah, well done. Very good. All right, we've done three weeks in a row of Pentateuch, I think, but you almost got me, I think. Yeah, I think that's because it's like, you wouldn't expect a fourth week of Pentateuch. (laughs) (laughs) 
So clearly, I love that's it. what it should be. Yeah. I love it. All right, Pip. I think that's it for us this week. I hope you have a good rest of your research week. Yeah, uh, you too. Thank you, and uh, listeners, we will catch you next week. See ya. Bye.